so we'll get started with uh, worshiping the Lord in his word. Let's pray. Father, bless the Perrys, we pray, as they travel. Give them safety on the road and give them a prosperous week as they go to camp at uh, Life Action Camp. We pray that you'll provide for their every need. And two, Lord, we pray that you will bless us. We need your strength. We need your help. We need your grace. We need your mercies and all those wonderful things that you bless us with and provide for us so freely and graciously, Father, and that you're so long-suffering and patient with us all through our life as we seek to honor you and to live a life that is pleasing to you, Lord, and and to grow and mature and be what we are called to be as believers in Christ. And I pray today that as we look to your word, that you would fill us with that uh, concern, fill us with that uh, desire, Father, to do that which is right and pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 23, we'll just take a it's really, I, I hope, and, and I get, I know I say these things and I say, well, it's going to be a simple message, a short message or whatever. And then I'm, once I get started, the Lord seems to just jump in and do things. But I'm thinking it's going to be a very simple message this morning, but one that I just take great comfort in. And last week I preached from Psalm 63 and I a satisfied soul. That's the title I came up with for that message. But it was interesting. I'm always amazed, always amazed how, I guess, inadequate I feel. You know, and, and probably properly so. You know, you shouldn't come in overly enthused or overly confident. But when then when you preach and then... How many people say, boy, that was exactly what I needed, and I was blessed by that, and you never know who it's going to be. Um, it's just different ones almost all the time. You know, it's just different people. So I trust that it will be that way this morning, that God will, will speak to our hearts. What I was just wanting to point out is a, this word hope and resurrection. In Acts chapter 23, uh, of course, you remember at this point, Paul has, you know, he's been on his career. He's, he's uh, met the Lord on the Damascus Road. God has changed his life. He's been through this so-called conversion experience where he saw the Lord and the Lord revealed to him who he was and was conv- thoroughly convinced of who Jesus was. And that he was alive, resurrected from the grave. Now, it doesn't say all those things in so many words right there. But as you follow Paul's ministry, you pick up on it very clearly and very easily. And so here in Acts 23, now he's winding his ministry down. And that's by the Lord's design. He's on his way to Rome. And he's been taken as a prisoner and and he's brought before the Sanhedrin to give a defense of his preaching and his message. And you'll see that in, um, I don't want to read all these verses because it would take forever and a day to give everything. But uh, in verse, verse 1, Paul 
It says, earnestly beholding the council said, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth and so on. And you know what happened there. And Paul said, I didn't know that you, you, know, you were the high priest. And it is written in verse 5, thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Verse 6, though, look at this. But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead. I am called in question. And of course, we know the outcome of that, that one little comment that he made stirred everybody up to the point where they kind of forgot what Paul was there for. Because in verse 7, it says, And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. Because the Sadducees says there was no resurrection, Pharisees says there was. Paul, being a Pharisee, of course, held to a resurrection of the dead. The hope and resurrection of the dead. And you catch the vital connection between the two that connected with the resurrection. And as we spoke just a few short weeks ago, the empty tomb and the message that the empty tomb sent, that one had risen from the dead in body, in bodily form. Such a thing had never been heard of. And yet, Paul said, all the prophets proclaimed this, that the Messiah had to rise from the dead. Then over in chapter 24, Paul has now moved before Felix. And if you look at verse um, 14, in Acts 24, 14, there Paul says, This I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope, hope toward God, which they themselves also allow. Who's they themselves? That is the prophets. That word allow means to wait for or receive or accept with anticipation, to expect. So they hope toward God, which they also themselves, it says, hope for or with anticipation they expect that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And we could do a quick look back to Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, and you would find Daniel speaking to that very subject. A resurrection. But that's not my point this morning. Not entirely, at least. Over in Acts chapter 26, finally, Paul now comes before King Agrippa. And in verses 1 through 18... 
Paul reiterates his call to the ministry once again. And he tells about how it all happened as he was on the road to Damascus and so on. And the things that occurred. And in verse 6, he says, I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. Unto which promise are 12 tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come. Or that word to come is translated elsewhere, hope to attain. As a matter of fact, in Philippians 3.11, when Paul says that he might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, he uses the same word there, I hope to attain. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible? And the word incredible there is our familiar word for uh, the word believe, only it's in the negative. So he, he's saying, why do you think it's such a thing unbelievable with you that God should raise the dead? And so you see that the kingpin, as it were, the key issue in this whole legal procedure revolved around the resurrection of the dead and the hope that was connected with that resurrection. Because if there was a resurrection of the dead, their hope had the possibility of being fulfilled. And of course, we understand without having to go through a lot of other scriptures this morning, would be fulfilled in the inheritance that God had promised to Israel and ultimately then to Gentiles. And so all really I'm looking at this morning is some things that we know, but I trust will be a reminder as well as an encouragement. Turn over to uh, Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3, And verse 3, we see a little bit farther or further, Paul in his ministry describing what God had given him to preach. In verse 1, he says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles... If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words. Whereby, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Verse 6, he says that. The Gentiles should be fellow heirs, co-heirs, and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ, not by, but through the gospel. It is through the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, 
to both Jew and to Gentiles that they would be fellow heirs or sharers in the promise. Fellow members, as it were, in the same body. Now, boy, I'll tell you what. When you talk about a Jew yoking up with a Gentile, that was a new thing. That was something that was contrary to everything that a Jew was taught because they were to be as separated and as far from a Gentile as they could be. Oh, yeah, there were Gentiles that joined themselves to the Jewish congregation. Even while they were in the wilderness, traveling up to the promised land, you know, they had the mixed multitude that followed followed along. But they did not yoke up with them in any way. And they remained separate. And so for this new revelation that Paul went about sharing to both Jew and Gentile, that they would now be joined together in one company, one body. Now, of course, the Jews saw themselves as one body. That's changed. Now one body comprised of Jew and Gentile. And then if you look at over, we'll turn over to Colossians chapter 1. And in verse, uh, and then it's very hard to tell where to, where to start and where to end in here. But in, let's begin with verse, um, well, Paul, again, presents the gospel. And as he does so, he ends in verse 23 of chapter 1. You'll notice that he says, if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister." Verse 24, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is lacking or is behind in the King James, but which is lacking of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. That is simply to say Paul, or God had a special uh, dispensation set aside, a stewardship for the Apostle Paul to preach this gospel. This gospel that was to go to the Gentile. That's all having a dispensation there means. A special stewardship assigned to the Apostle Paul to preach this gospel And notice what he goes on to say. Verse 26. Even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made 
manifest or made known to his saints to whom God would make known. Now that word would, God would make known. Understand that to say that God, uh, to whom God willed or was pleased to make known. What is the riches or the wealth of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of the glory? So Paul is just simply telling the believers at Colossae in the church If you notice when he says among the Gentiles, this mystery was to be made known. Then he says, which is Christ in you? Now, I, in my Bible, I just circled the word among and the word in. And I put a little line connecting them because in Greek, it's the same word, in. Context tells you which way to translate it. And I think probably that it should say Christ among you. And I'm going to try to read it with the inflection that will present that. So he says, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ among you. You Gentiles at Colossae, the hope of the glory. And so as we think about the hope of the glory, the glory which Christ himself will experience when he comes to sit on his throne and occupy the place that the Father has set aside for him to rule this earth one day. And for those who will be resurrected to participate in and have that hope fulfilled in them as partakers or sharers in that coming glory. And Paul says, we preach whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. That's our ultimate goal. That's what we want to have happen to us as the word of God is ministered to us and as we, whether we're reading it in our personal private devotions, whether we're studying it, whether it's being preached and proclaimed to us or whatever manner, it is so that the man of God may grow and mature and find himself complete whole, not lacking in any way when he stands before Christ Jesus. That's the ultimate. 
Now, when I look at that, I think, man, alive. What a goal. I think I fail so often, and I come up short so much. <coughs> and by the way, oh boy, I don't know if I should say this right now, but I will. In Romans chapter 3, when Paul says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know, the standard interpretation for that is to apply that to the lost person. But I don't think that applies to that lost person at all. He's talking about people like you and me. We all come short of the glory of God. But the goal can be attained. The goal to attainment is wholeness, maturity, completeness. So that we stand before him unashamed. Paul says, I labor also, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. With the energy, Paul labors, he toils, labors, works hard according to his working or energy. That's the energia, where we get our English word energy, which works in me or energizes in me mightily or in power. And that is one of the most amazing things to me as you preach the gospel is to recognize the power that is in the gospel and the preaching of it and what happens in men's hearts as they hear the gospel as simple as it might be. In other words, I go back to my own experience of when I first heard the gospel, I first received Christ and how minute the amount of factual content that I had and understood. But I did understand it, thankfully, even as a young boy. And God took that little bit and in faith, you know, accepted my faith, I believed, and I was changed, converted, and understood what it meant, that little bit, just that little bit. But from there, then, it begins to blossom and grow, and that's what it should be happening for all of us, to move on, to grow, to blossom, to reach and attain to that goal so that we can be, as the Apostle Paul said, have the hope of the resurrection of the dead fulfilled in us. And there will be a resurrection. It's, it's experiencing the hope that we want to attain to. The hope of the glory that is yet to come. If you will then... Look over at chapter 2. Oh, wait a minute. Um, yeah. Ephesians. We've got to go back to Ephesians, but it is chapter 2. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12, notice that he says there, 
that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. That is, that we're talking now prior to the reception of the gospel. He says, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There was a time when Gentiles had no such hope as the believing Jew experienced. They did have hope. And apart from the covenants that God had given to Israel, there was no possibility for a Gentile to have any of the hope that Paul is speaking of. But now, now, through the gospel, there is hope. There is the prospect of a future. And if you go to, um, well, I'm going to have to skip a lot because time is running away. But I want us to go then to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3. And we see the writer to the book of, uh, of the book of Hebrews. And he writes to these Hebrew believers writes to them concerning this coming promise, this hope. In chapter 3, verse 6, he says, But Christ as a son over his own house. Now, what does all that mean? Well, he just got through talking about Moses being faithful as, uh, over his house. Now he's saying, but Christ was faithful as a son over his own house, not over somebody else's, but over his own. Whose house are we, or whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope, the hope, firm unto the end? What is, what is this rejoicing of the hope then? It is simply the sharing of the glory of God. To share in that coming glory when the Lord Jesus Christ occupies that throne. If you take a moment to turn back to Romans chapter 5 and verse 2. The Apostle Paul there says in Romans 5 verse 2 he says by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God so back back to Hebrews chapter 3 so when the writer to the Hebrews speaks about this hope, you can understand that he says they're rejoicing of the hope of the sharing of the glory of God firm unto the end. In other words, if he'd have been writing it just like Paul wrote it, this is what he would have said. And we can understand that we can insert that phrase right there and we catch the context of what the writer is speaking about. The hope of the glory. Then if you will look at chapter 6. Oh, and by the way, 
I should add in there, firm unto the end. All the way to the end of life. All the way to fulfillment and completeness. In chapter 6 and verse 11, this familiar passage that proves a difficulty to many. But he says in verse six, uh, chapter 6 of verse 1, he says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on. Go on unto what? Perfection. The same thing. The same goal. The same thing that Paul's been saying. Move on to Christian maturity, in other words. Don't get hung up on the basic principles here, as he's saying. Move on from those things. And then over in verse 11, he says, And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope, and it's the hope again with the article, unto the end, to the goal. And so we're simply saying to understand that resurrection and the goal that's out ahead has a purpose. It has an end in view. And faith is not a nebulous, empty thing. But faith has content. It has reality. It has something to grab a hold of. It has something to labor towards and work for. And take confidence in. And when the writers, when Habakkuk said, the just shall live by faith, an Old Testament passage that's quoted three times in the New Testament, he was telling us about those Old Testament saints who understood the exact truth that the New Testament writers speak of, except the Messiah has now come and proven himself through resurrection of the dead. And he has been, as it were, added to the message. So there was a proclamation about the coming glory of the Messiah. But now they can add to the message, Jesus. Jesus who actually died and rose from the dead. And we've got witnesses to prove that he rose from the dead. They saw him, ate with him fellowshiped with him, ate breakfast with him on the seashore. (laughs) You know, when I read passages like these, I think, how can you get any more sure or any more confident of God's promise to you and me than passages like these? that assure us that God has a future glory set aside for his son and for those who walk in fellowship with him and who seek for that glory and in whom God says he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. There is a promise of a bright future that is absolutely incredible. Uh, And I don't use that in a 
in, a, in the same sense used back there in the book of Acts where they said <laughs> incredible like, I ain't going to believe this. This is unbelievable. A resurrection of the dead? No, I mean incredible in that God is desiring to share the glory of his son with people like you and me. And when I read those things, I get so excited about the future, I can't imagine what glory awaits. What an inspiration then it becomes to me to seek after Christ and to live after him. And yet you say, oh man, well, you failed though. Well, yeah, I did. And we all do. But we can all still walk the path. We can all still walk the bright side of faith. Turn to another passage. Or, well, actually, you don't have to turn there if you just look down to verse 18. In verse 17, God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, that is, the unchangeableness of his counsel, the purpose of the unchangeableness of his purpose confirmed it by an oath that by two unchangeable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, strong encouragement who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. How do we do that? Lay hold of the hope set before us. You know, this is just similar language to what Paul told Timothy about lay hold of eternal life. And you and I, we would be more likely to understand what he's saying there is to lay hold of the life of the age to come. Life of the age to come requires resurrection. Life for the age to come will be resurrection with glory. A glory that is fulfilled in participation with God's own son in ruling and reigning over this earth. And then he goes on to say there, this, um, this hope set before us. Um, you, you turn over to chapter 12, and here I go again, but chapter 12, verse 2. You look at verse 2, he says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. And I asked a guy one time going to seminary, I said, what do, you, what do you think that joy is? And he said, well, just probably the joy of all the people that were going to get saved, you know, and go to heaven. <laughs> Isn't that the standard message we hear? You're either going to die and go to hell or you're going to die and then go to heaven. But the joy that was set before the Lord, the joy that was set before him was his coming rule over the earth. And when you talk about the hope set before us, it's the same thing. It's the hope of 
participation in the coming rule with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we suffer with him. That's why we unite with him in faith. And then if you look at um, verse 19, he says, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. What is it that will anchor you, that will take you through life, that will enable you to endure every affliction, every trial, every temptation, every situation which, which confronts us? It's the hope, the coming hope of sharing in the rule of Christ. And then lastly, that was last, <laughs> verse 19. Let me, let me wrap it up. So all we were trying to say and all the scriptures are teaching us and all that Paul was trying to say and all the, that the writer to the book of Hebrews is trying to say is that our hope in our future is all wrapped up in the confidence that we take in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was resurrected in a body, that he is alive today, that he is not floating around in heaven in some kind of a spirit, but he has a body. And that one day, when our bodies, if we're not here when the Lord comes and we die, that our bodies will be raised from a grave miraculously in a new form, but a body nonetheless, and a body that will be uniquely fitted to each one of us so that we might uniquely fulfill what he has designed for us in sharing in the rule of his son over this earth. That is going to be something that is beyond me and my ability to explain in words. But I can tell you this, that today is the day that he has given us to prepare ourselves and ready ourselves for that coming day. If we do not, if we are not growing, if we are not maturing, if we are not moving forward as a believer towards that goal, then there's every bit of the possibility that we can come up short. And Paul lived in that fear. Paul lived with that understanding. Paul lived his life in such a way that he understood that there was the potential for him to come up short. And the, one of the most convicting passages and, uh, for me in the New Testament with regard to this topic and this subject was when Paul says, I make my body my slave. Because that's a hard thing to do. How many of us each day practice making our body a slave and we make it do what we dictate to it when it cries out so loud and so hard 
I want this. I want that. And the scriptures uses the term, it lusts after these things. It desires these things. And it wants this and it wants that. And our job, our job as a Christian, as a seeker of that hope, is to make our body a slave. Keep it under control. Manage it. And dictate to it what we're going to do for that day and how we're going to treat it. And we do that. If we do that, then Paul says, I won't be a castaway then. But he lived in fear that he could be a castaway, as the King James says. But other translations say disqualified or disapproved. And we don't want to be there. We want to stand approved. We want to stand qualified. We want to stand with God's blessing. And he can do it. And it can happen, as he tells uh, uh, in, in the book of Jude, that we can stand before him blameless. Blameless. Nobody being able to cast any reproach against us, all because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand strong with our hope firm in him. And we'll make it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray. I pray that you'll help us to stand strong in Christ to be firm believers in him, to not waver in our faith, to be filled with the joy and the wonder of Christ and what he has done for us and what is yet to be done in that coming day when he returns. And it's already been mentioned, Father, in our service this morning, how near, how near we feel that day is. Let us be ever diligent to walk with that in mind. Let us covenant together as a body of believers to hold one another up and encourage one another along the way. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.